since the start of time, since the start of creation, has and is revolving around the person and work of Christ. When we come to Christ as our Savior in simple, childlike faith, we will find salvation rest. We have a greater high priest. We only need Jesus to be our advocate. Some of you have probably been to Washington, D.C. to the Museum of Natural History, and maybe you have seen there is a gem on display there called the Hope Diamond. It is a vivid, dark blue, 45 and a half carat diamond, and it was found in the 1600s when it was dug out of the mud in India. Geologists consider it to be priceless. It is said to be the greatest diamond in the world. However, you can't help but think that there may be another one out there that's larger and more valuable, buried in the earth somewhere, just waiting to be discovered. So to say that there will never be a jewel greater than the Hope Diamond is to presume on the unknown in the future. Some of you know this face. Michael Jordan has been called the greatest basketball player of all time. It is said there will never be another as accomplished in the game as he. He's considered to be the greatest in the sport. However, somewhere on some playground or in some school gymnasium right now, there may be a youngster who will shatter all the records Jordan has ever set. So to say that there will never be a basketball player greater than Michael Jordan is a stretch of the imagination in light of what may be down the road just a few years now. You'll recognize this face. It's Albert Einstein, said to be the greatest mind in the world. He routinely pondered concepts so deep and profound that the average person could never begin to grasp them. He has been called the greatest intellect of all time. However, who's to say? That somewhere in the world today, there isn't a child whose mind is sharper, whose brilliance will surpass even that of Einstein. There may be one out there in the days ahead with even greater genius. Well, the truth is that nothing in this world is incomparable. Nothing is matchless. Everything can be equaled or exceeded by mankind. However... There is one who will never be equaled or exceeded. His name is Jesus, and he will always be greater throughout life. Wherever he went, people marveled at his greatness. When he was an infant, Mary and Joseph marveled at what was spoken about Jesus. His disciples were around him 24-7 for three years, and they marveled at his compassion and love for people. Even his enemies marveled at his wisdom and teaching. The multitudes marveled at his miracles. Even his executioners marveled at the greatness of Jesus and bore witness to his deity. And nothing in over 20 centuries has changed. Jesus is still greater. He will never be equaled, let alone surpass. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, we read, Therefore God exalted 
Jesus to the highest place. Now, if you are exalted to the highest place, there is no place higher than the highest. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So Jesus has been, he is, and he always will remain greater. But our culture today is pressuring us to abandon Jesus. Joseph Stoll was for 18 years the president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. On one occasion, he was invited to the Chicago Leadership Prayer Breakfast. And a major feature of this event included a Muslim cleric, an ecumenical Protestant minister, a Hindu guru, a Roman Catholic priest, and a Jewish rabbi. And all five of them stood together at one point, and they read a prayer together in unison, symbolizing that they were all praying to the same God. The speaker that morning was the rector of Holy Trinity Church on Wall Street, which was right next to Ground Zero. And he said, quote, after 9-11, God is back, but in this new environment, we must be willing to give up those traditions that divide us so we can be one. President Stoll was stunned. In effect, he was being urged in that assembly to equate Jesus with a tradition and to give up Jesus. And he hoped that the rector would not get a standing ovation, but he did. And Joseph Stoll knew that if he stood, he would be, in effect, denying Christ, so he remained seated, and he did not applaud. So the push to blur the distinctive of our Christian faith in order to create a one-world church is gaining ground. Thomas Friedman recently wrote in the New York Times, it is urgent that the different religions reinterpret their traditions to embrace Modernity. Now, when you see that word modernity, you can think religious fad. That's what modernity is. And pluralism, pluralism, when you hear that word, you know what that means. It means that all beliefs are equally valid. And to create space for secularism. When you see the word secularism, you think freedom from Bible teaching, and alternative faiths. And when you see that, you can think doctrine of demons. Now, the push to give up Jesus goes all the way back to the first century. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, Peter and John healed a man in Jesus' name. He had been lame all of his life. A great crowd gathered, and Peter preached to them that Jesus is the author of life, born of a virgin in fulfillment of 1,500-year-old prophecies, that he was raised from the dead, that he's coming again, and that through him all the families on earth can be blessed. And they were arrested for that. And they were warned that they had better give up Jesus, and they politely refused. And here are their words in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. Now earlier, in Acts chapter 2, Peter had publicly proclaimed for the first time that Jesus is the one and only the greater Savior. And the audience of several thousand who were there in the temple court on the day of Pentecost were Jewish. And 3,000 of them believed the word of Peter and received Jesus and were baptized that day and it formed the first Christian church of Jerusalem. But by the time the book of Hebrews was written, many of those who came to Christ on the day of Pentecost, in the earliest days of the preaching of the good news of the gospel, and the first days of the infant church, many of them were by now senior adults, and they were rooted in all the churches that received this Hebrew epistle. But many of them had a a case of what you might call arrested discipleship development, You know, discipleship development is supposed to go like that for a lifetime. And some of them had leveled off. And so we read these words in Hebrews chapter 5, beginning with verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, because they've been Christians now for a while, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. In those verses, in those verses, we learn how important it is for us to mature, to go upward and onward and forward. And that is exactly what we've been doing in this series of messages in the book of Hebrews. And today, we come to learn that Jesus is a greater Savior. So I wonder if you've noticed the fascination that people have today with superheroes. The opening weekend of the very first Superman movie, way back in 1978, grossed over $100 million in 1978 on the opening weekend. Since then, we've had the X-Men series and at least two Spider-Man movies. I can't keep up. The Incredible Hulk. Uh, Many of the dozen or so Batman movies were blockbusters, and now we've got Catman and, oh, oh my goodness, Catwoman. Iron Man, we got Ant-Man, Ant-Man, Captain America, and if you've got in your attic some old vintage comic books on these superheroes, and they're pretty, in pretty good shape, and they're pretty old, you ought to see what they're worth. Some sell for anywhere from $50 up to $50,000. What is this fascination that we have with superheroes. Well, could it be that our fascination with superheroes comes from an internal awareness that we need someone to save us? After all, that's what these mythical characters routinely do, and we gravitate toward these men and women with supernatural powers that have big hearts for us mere mortals. But see, it's a a fictitious salvation 
It's simply a reflection of a longing for a real world personal salvation that is available only through Jesus, God's Son, our greater Savior. So God made a way for us to be saved in Him, through Him. But what about this? Is Jesus really the only Savior? And what about all the other religions on this planet? And what about those who've never heard of Jesus? Today, we're going to address these questions, and we're going to find out what the answers mean to us. All right, here we go. What about it? Is Jesus really the only Savior? Well, have you seen these commercials that have a doctor dressed uh, as a, or an actor rather dressed as a doctor, and he starts out by saying, "I'm not a doctor, but I play one on television." Yeah, these guys really look convincing to me. Or what about, what about these, these guys who sneak into hospitals, confiscate a white coat and a badge and a clipboard, and they begin to go around checking on patients? How can you tell for sure if someone is a doctor or not? Is it an actor? Or is it someone who just lifted a white coat out of a side room? How do you know it's a real doctor? Well, first, you would look at his or her credentials. Does he or she have a medical doctorate from a real medical school? The second thing you'd want to consider is whether he or she was actively practicing medicine. If they didn't have a practice, that would be a bit of a red flag. Finally, would you want to see his or her results? You want to know what kind of doctor they were, whether they truly helped anyone or not. And you'd come up with three possible conclusions after you check these things out. You would assume, first of all, that the person may be lying about being a doctor. If he claims to be a doctor and he doesn't have a medical doctorate, he's lying about being a doctor. Or he might be insane, actually believing he was a doctor even though he was not. Or indeed he was a real doctor. There are those three possibilities. Either he was lying about it, he's insane, or he was indeed a real doctor. We can make the same argument about Jesus' claim of being the only Savior in the world. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is saying he is the only Savior of the world. And C.S. Lewis was right when he said this statement by Jesus means that he was either a liar or he was a lunatic or he was Lord. Those are the only three options. So let's apply the reasoning to Jesus' claim as we did the person claiming to be a doctor. Okay, what about Jesus' credentials? Well, literally hundreds of Old Testament prophecies telling of the coming Messiah, Lord and Savior, and Jesus fulfilled every one of them. Well, then was Jesus practicing what he preached? Yes, he conformed his life to his teaching. He's the only person to live and die without committing sin. And then we look at the results of Jesus' work, which were transformed lives. So you've got uneducated men who become great teachers. You've got brash sinners who become models of integrity and morality. You've got cowards who become courageous martyrs. And diseases are healed and demons are cast out and the winds and waves obey his voice and those who were dead he brought back to life and then he conquered death himself so he fits the criteria for being a greater savior 
But the problem is, today people want to make Jesus just a man. Just a man who was wise and a good teacher, but he was not the Savior of the world. There are people who want to make Jesus a mere mortal. Now, no rational person would deny that Jesus lived, so what are you going to do with him? Some people say, well, he's just a man. He's just a good teacher. But to say he's a good teacher, that means he lied when he said he was the Son of God. Either that or he was delusional and he actually believed it. Either way, if he was a liar or a lunatic, well, then you can't, you can't believe a word out of his mouth. So he's not going to qualify as a good teacher. He cannot be a good teacher because a good teacher does not lie and a good teacher is not insane. So Jesus has to be the Lord of all and the Savior that we're all longing for just as he said. What about this? What about all these other religions? Well, listen. The next time you're flying out of Chicago, I want you to try this. I want you to walk around the O'Hare Airport terminal blindfolded and pick any gate. And once you get there, I want you to board whatever plane is at that gate. And then when the plane lands, I want you to call me and let me know if you got to your destination that you planned on visiting. There's no way that you're going to end up where you wanted to go because there are so many gates with planes going to different locations around the world. And even though all the planes are outbound, there's only one plane going to where you intend to go. And unless you get on that plane, you're not going to wind up at your intended destination. Well, I want you to look at something that is being repeated these days that is as silly as going to the airport blindfolded, getting on a random plane and actually arriving where you intended to go. Here's the way pollster George Barna puts it. In a registered opinion poll, four of every ten American adults believe that all religions are really the same. They're just taking different routes to get to the same place. When Christians, Jews, Buddhists, and others pray to their God, all of those individuals are actually praying to the same God, but simply using different names for that deity. Forty percent of Americans believe this. And you pulled up behind some cars that had a bumper sticker on the back window or the back bumper that said, coexist, and it reduces Christianity to all the other religions of the world. But all you need to do is take a quick look at the different religions to realize there are irreconcilable differences between Christianity and all the rest. First, look at the nature of salvation in every other religion except Christianity. You're saved by the works you do. You have to work your way into heaven. But through Jesus, we're saved by God's grace. You don't work your way into heaven. You accept the gift of salvation from a loving and forgiving Lord. 
Secondly, you ought to look at Jesus. No other religious leader has ever claimed to be God. They only claim to be messengers, but Jesus claims to be the Son of God who came to seek and to serve and to save people. And that is distinctive. He is the only he is the only God who comes to seek and save and serve people. All the others insist on being sought and being served if you're going to be saved. Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, all the rest are corpses. That's another difference. No other religious leaders ever conquered death. These other religious leaders are corpses. They're dust in their tombs today. But Jesus Christ is risen. He lives in us, and he is the only, the only personal God. Back to Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. He is the greater Savior. And yet, to make that statement today, you're going to be called narrow-minded. You're going to hear God being charged as being unfair. But it's just another way of representing the original sin that was committed in the Garden of Eden, like Adam and Eve. We want to be equal with God. We want to be our own gods. We want to be our own authority. We want to be in charge of our own destiny. We want to be the captain of our own ship. That's what that's about. And listen, God being unfair, he is the polar opposite of unfair. He's full of grace. He made a way for us to be his. He made a way for us to be forgiven. He made a way for us to live abundantly now and eternally in heaven. And that way, the only way, is Jesus. Are there any good points in other religions? Sure. Certainly there are. Most belief systems have some aspects of truth, but they don't have the actual truth. Jesus. They've got principles. They've got precepts. They've got platitudes. They've even got piety, but they do not have the person. Jesus. They've got buildings and budgets, but they do not have the blood of Jesus, which alone can cleanse sin. And they have convictions and they have commitments, but they do not have the cross of Jesus. And Jesus, who was loving and accepting and magnanimous and inclusive, said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And I take these uncharacteristic words from him very seriously. Well, what about this? What about those who have never heard of Jesus? I've been asked this quite a bit through the years. Usually this kind of a question. Will a loving, good, and fair God deny salvation to someone who's never heard of Jesus? Now this is often asked by someone who's looking for some kind of loophole. Some way that they can excuse their own reluctance to commit or as an attempt to reveal some kind of inconsistency, some kind of contradiction in 
the character of God as he is revealed in the Bible. And, and somehow they have the idea that if they can get something on God, that that excuses them from any accountability to become a believer. In dealing with this question, I want to say up front that God is the judge. I certainly am not. And he is the final authority on who goes to heaven and who does not. And actually, the Bible does not give us a lot of detail about the destiny of those who have never heard. But there are a couple of relevant passages from the book of Romans. Here's one. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Now Paul is saying that we should know that there is a good God by just looking around us. And how can any rational person look at this beautiful blue planet in the middle of a universe that is black and gray and brown? How can you look at that without realizing there is a powerful, loving God who made this planet special. He formed every mountain, every ocean for us. Creation speaks to every man that there is a creator God who is good. So Paul tells us that no man has any excuse to not respond to the reality of God, to the existence of God, to the goodness of God. Every time you look in a mirror and every time you look at the world around you, you ought to see it. But you can suppress it. Knowing that we're made by him and for him is innate. It is known and it is understood by what we see. And godlessness and wickedness are the result of the suppression of our built-in knowledge of God. But some people may never hear or see more of God than what is revealed in creation. So what hope do they have? After all, we can only be responsible for what we've seen and heard. Well, the people who see nature, see creation, and realize there is a good God, they can worship Him even without hearing the gospel, even without knowing about His revelation of Himself. They can at least worship God as they know Him, and they can live consistently within the boundaries of His moral law as they understand it. And his moral law is innate. You say, well, over in New Guinea, back in the jungles, those people don't know that murder is wrong. Why, certainly they do. They don't kill and eat the members of their own family. And what about stealing and what about lying? God's moral law is built into us by virtue of creation. And then God may give them some special revelation about himself. There's a good biblical example of this in Acts chapter 10. Involved a man named Cornelius. He was not a Jew. 
and he had not heard about Jesus, he still worshiped and prayed to God the best he knew how, and God gave him a vision and told him to send for Peter, and Peter came to him and shared with him in his household the good news about Jesus, and they all believed and were baptized. And there are documented accounts today of Muslims who are experiencing miraculous dreams and revelations of Jesus. Although the details of how this happens are in the realm of mystery, we can be sure of this truth. Here it is. Psalm 98.9 He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with fairness. Let me tell you, a lot of the people who call God into question about his role as judge are themselves not nearly as just, not nearly as fair. We know that God's grace is so much bigger than our biggest ideas about it. And we know that he is just. He's fair. And here's what I know. Regardless of the lack of certainty, the lack of clarity in answer to this question, I know this, we've got to make every effort to get to these lands where these people have never heard the gospel and teach them. And I am so proud of our missionary commitment as a church. Our missionary priority commitment as a church is to reach the unreached peoples of the world. Why do we do that? Because of Romans 10, 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And our all-in generosity initiative is providing an additional $610,000 on top of the $1.3 million that we have in our annual operating budget, which, by the way, has quadrupled in the last decade. God has us here to reach these unreached people by giving financially to missions, caring for and praying for our missionary partners around the world, attending our momentum class, if you ever have an opportunity to attend that class, it will just thrill you to see about the expansion of God's kingdom throughout the world. And actually going on short-term mission trips, friends, listen. While we may long for a superhero to save us, not going to happen. But there is, in fact, a real Savior. And he's not a mythical character. He's not a comic book character. He is the historic Lord Jesus. And if you have not yet trusted him to be your Savior, you can do it today. If you want to make Crossroads your church home, you can do it today. You just remain seated after we dismiss. A section host or a pastor will come to you. And for those of us who are all ready in Christ. We have already been added to his church. We have something else to think about today as we go home. How am I going to invest my life and my limited resources to tell the people in my personal world about the only Savior, Jesus? How am I going to invest my life, my resources, and reaching the people in the unsaved religious world, a lot of them out there,
How am I going to invest my life, my limited resources to reach the yet unreached world? To tell them about our greater Savior, Jesus. If you've never taken that seriously before, find a quiet place. Think about it. Pray about it. And let the Lord use you because having a greater Savior, that's not to make us smug and self-satisfied. That is to empower us and energize us to reach people for Him, our greater Savior. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father God, it is just such a joy to come together on the first day of the week to enthrone you on our praises, to open our hearts in prayer, to fellowship with one another, encourage one another, and to learn from your word truths that will brighten our days and make us a blessing to others. Lord, we thank you. There's no one higher, no one greater than Jesus, our Savior and Lord. May people see him in us and hear about him from us. We pray in his name.